Hi, my name is Elizabeth Hodgson, and I'm a regional vegetable specialist with the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program. One of my roles on our team is serving as our food safety lead. Over the past few years, I've worked with Gretchen Wall from the Produce Safety Alliance to deliver grower trainings and improve my own knowledge of the FISMA Produce Safety Rule. I'm here today with Gretchen, and we'll be discussing FISMA updates and recent food safety issues. Gretchen is an Extension Associate with Cornell's Produce Safety Alliance, based in New Hampshire, with 10 years of experience on the PSA team. Thanks for joining me today, Gretchen. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. I'm always happy to talk about food safety. Awesome. So Gretchen, what have you been up to so far this summer? Do you get to go out into the field much these days, or are you more focused on, on virtual trainings? Well, I'm sure as many people would say right now, this year has been a little bit different for everybody. I would say that COVID definitely threw a wrench in a lot of our on-farm education activities that we might have um, been hosting otherwise. There was also a baby that was added into the mix this year that kept me at home a little bit more, but we still have been working a lot with growers and educators remotely. Unfortunately, there is a lot of outreach and extension that can be done remotely through trainings and webinars and other technical assistance. So I think that has been a huge focus and investment of my time recently, but I'm definitely looking forward to resuming farm visits and in person because I just don't think that web interactions can replace human interactions. But for now, we've been working with growers in any way we can from afar. Yeah, congratulations, Gretchen. It sounds like you've been quite busy and you know, likewise, I'm looking forward to doing more in-person training. Um, over the past you know year plus, we've been doing a lot of virtual PSA trainings. And this summer, I've started doing more on-farm readiness reviews. And we're kind of hoping that we'll be able to do in-person PSA trainings starting this fall. So that's, that's my plan right now. So Gretchen, let's first start out by letting our listeners know what's happening on farms this year in terms of FISMA inspections. Earlier this spring, I spoke with Ag and Markets, and they told me that in New York State, this year, all farms that are covered by the produce safety rule are eligible for inspections. And so in previous years, Ag and Markets was prioritizing the larger farms for inspections starting in 2019. And as you know, the years have gone on, um, at, at this point this year, all of the farms will be eligible for inspection for, um, and, and the smaller farms for the, for the first time in 2021. And for those larger farms that did receive an inspection earlier, they may be receiving a second inspection this year, um, but that'll be on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, I did have a chance to catch up with Aaron Finley at Ag and Markets to get some more information about what's going on from the New York perspective. And, and you're absolutely right about um, some of the things you just mentioned. But I think there are plenty of opportunities for growers. I think we're going to talk about on-farm readiness reviews coming up. But some farms in New York State may have recently had contact with Ag and Markets inspectors for what they call educational visits. So these are neither an on-farm readiness review nor inspections. They're just what they sound like, an opportunity to sort of chat informally with their team about produce safety and that inspection process. So that can help them an additional way to help prepare for a future inspection. But yeah, they are moving forward with inspections for basically all farm sizes at this point. And some of the larger farms who have already been inspected may be seeing egg and markets come back this season for a second visit. 
They've also been reaching out. Some farms may have been contacted by Ag and Markets to fill out those qualified exemption forms just so that uh, they have that for their own record keeping purposes. That would be documenting whether the farm is selling to qualified exempt users and, and how consumers, I mean, and how much in total food sales they're selling and whether they meet that qualified exemption. So that's just a simple piece of paper that they've been collecting. And I know it may seem daunting to have an inspector on the farm, but I do think there's so much opportunity here through experiences that Department of Ag and Markets is providing to New York State growers that's going to better position them for success and ultimately keep more produce safe. Yeah. So Gretchen, you mentioned there are these, yeah, three different levels of visits from Ag and Markets. So just a very... I don't want to say casual, but a more of an educational visit where an inspector may stop by. And then kind of the next level up from that is an on-farm readiness review. And then, you know, after that would be the actual inspection. And so maybe, you know, I'll remind listeners what an on-farm readiness review is. Um, We've talked about these for a couple of years. And, you know, this is a visit that we really recommend for farms that are getting ready for their inspection. And so this is an educational visit where an Ag and Markets inspector will visit a produce farm with a CCE educator, such as you know Gretchen or myself, and we'll walk around the farm and we'll have a conversation and we'll ask the grower questions relating to food safety and the produce safety rule. So you know we'll talk about things like which soil amendments are being used on the farm, water testing, worker training, record keeping. We'll try to see some of those covered activities on the farm, such as, you know, what's going on in the wash pack, maybe the pick your own. And then at the end of the visit, we will provide the grower with resources and information just to help them improve food safety on the farm based on what we saw. I personally don't take notes. Some people take notes, but any notes that are taken during that visit will be given to the grower and you know, nothing, no paperwork really, you know, leaves the farm. It's, it's confidential and it, it's not, it's not an inspection, but it's, it's a great way to help a farm prepare for an inspection. And so I've been doing a few of these um, so far this, this spring and early summer. And again, you know, Eigenmarkets told me that there are plenty of, you know, time slots available if farms are interested in doing this. And so I will post Steve Shermer's um, and Aaron Finley's contact information at the in the episode description for this podcast so that if a farm is interested in booking one of these, they can go ahead and let them know. Yeah, and I think there's, there's a lot that we've learned over the past few years since the on-farm readiness reviews have been launched. And just in talking to Aaron and, and hearing from our educators in New York State and looking at some of the national data. So every time one of these on-farm readiness reviews occurs, the um, person who's leading that review, typically the the extension personnel, they do fill out a survey. It's completely anonymous. It doesn't have any of the farm identifiers or locations or any of that information. It basically just asks the person who's leading that activity what sort of observations they saw on the farm so that it can better help we as educators tailor resources and outreach opportunities to better prepare growers. And some of the things that we found through those survey results at a national level, but also this relates to New York State, because I think there have been quite a few observations of this by the inspectors, as well as us as educators who are conducting OFRRs. But the two most frequent areas that we're seeing need some improvement are mostly related to 
two of the subparts in the rule. Um, one of the subparts is called subpart L, and that really focuses on equipment, tools, buildings, and then cleaning and sanitation practices. So there are some deficiencies on farms just with regards to cleaning and sanitation, especially with food contact surfaces. So we're talking about harvest totes and bins, um, tables, packing equipment, those sort of things. And then also the record keeping aspect, that's subpart O. A lot of the record keeping, many growers are already doing the record keeping, but they may just not be including small details like the name and contact information of the farm or maybe the individual who's actually filling out that record, who's responsible for that record. So I just would encourage everybody to use the templates that are available, and I'll, I'll send you some of the resources, Elizabeth, to include in this podcast, because there's so many templates out there that would actually meet the requirements of the regulation, so there's no need to reinvent the wheel on record keeping. And actually, from the FISMA perspective, for the produce safety rule, there are actually very few records that are required for this rule. I think there's only eight or nine of them in total, so I don't want people to walk away from this podcast going, oh my God, there's so many records. And that's why so many growers are, are having trouble with this. It's, it's really just finding the flow and making sure that you're dotting all your T's and crossing, <laughs> dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's um, on the record keeping components and making sure you have those records on hand um, if you do end up having an inspection in the future. But like I said, there's lots of templates to help them out with this stuff. Definitely. And I am more than happy to post a link to to those templates in this episode description as well. Um, but yeah, I'm seeing those deficiencies frequently on farms as well. Those are some of the common ones that come up. And then another common one that has come up for me on visits is worker training. I know it can be tough for farms. You know, sometimes workers are arriving late and there's, you know, they're arriving at a time where they really just need to jump into, into the activities and get things done. But there are also, you know, a lot of worker, great worker training resources out there. Um, I recently worked on a project um, that involved evaluating and kind of cataloging all of these worker training resources. So there are a lot of videos out there, um, you know, fact sheets and resources to help, um, you know, farm owners and crew leaders train, train workers. And so, you know, if, if a farm is looking for that type of resource, I can help them out with that as well. And the awesome thing about improving your worker training, that has benefits far beyond food safety, right? Those are efficiency things for the farm, quality for the produce itself to make sure it's being handled properly. I mean, there's just so many benefits of having your workers really well trained and knowing what they're doing that aren't just food safety related. So there's there's a double smiley face there. Exactly. Yeah, worker training is a, a great time investment. Get a lot back out of that. Something else I noticed going on to farms is that at this, you know, at this point, there's still some covered farms that haven't taken the PSA grower training course. Um, and Gretchen, I was wondering if you could just give us a little update on that in terms of format. So I know starting, you know, in March 2020, there was a shift to allowing this course to be delivered virtually, but I know there's also um, what's what the PSA calls an online option. So I was just wondering if you could give us an update and an overview of the different ways that growers can take that required course. So just as a reminder to our listeners, 
covered farms um, need to have at least one person on that farm taking this course um, and that they will obtain a certificate. Um, and as far as we know, that certificate doesn't expire and it you know stays with that person. Um, so, you know, it's we recommend honestly that that all farms take take the course, even if if they're not covered by the produce safety rule. Um, it's just, you know, a very comprehensive class that covers, you know, the ins and outs of food safety on a produce farm. But yeah, Gretchen, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about those courses. Sure. Um, I think if there's any one good thing that has come out of this pandemic, and I'm not saying anything has been good about this, but is just generally education being more accessible and more available through online options. So like you said, at the beginning of the pandemic around March of 2020, we realized really quickly that we were going to need to make that training available in an online format because we couldn't meet in person. You know, at the university level, we were not allowed to travel, nor was um, many other people around the country. So we wanted to um, quickly launch. We had been working on an online course, but we also recognized that um, there was a need to sort of amend our policies to allow for the PSA grower training to be delivered in an online format. So there are two different courses um, that are available to growers online right now. One is what we call the true online course. So this would be a self-paced three-week course that has does have a live instructor available to answer any questions, but it's a self-paced thing. Um, as long as you complete that course within the three-week window, you could be going through the modules at midnight if you wanted or at 5 a.m. before you go out into the field. So that's something that you would work through on your own and the modules are recorded. Um, there are some videos and things and there are discussions included in that online course. But like I said, there is there is an instructor, but it's not like they're delivering a live um, presentation. Those presentations are built into the course itself. So that's the online class. The other type of course that some growers may prefer just because they don't want to stretch it out over a three-week window is what we call a remotely delivered grower training. So remote grower training is one that we would deliver on the web using a program like Zoom or maybe Adobe Connect where a trainer or team of trainers delivers presentations in real time. So you would connect via your computer with audio and video. And most of those remote courses are offered in either a one or a two day format. Some people will do all of the modules in one day. So it ends up being sort of an, a nine to five program. Other um, people have been offering it in a two-day format where you, they break it up and they'll do, you know, four of the modules on one day and four of the modules on another day. So that's the other option. Just depends on what your learning style is. If you prefer to read material and have some interaction and, and do some activities and discussions related to that material, then I would highly recommend taking the online course versus if you would rather see a trainer present that information in a live format where you can ask questions right at that point in time, then you might be more interested in taking the remote course. You can find all of that course availability on our website, and I'll make sure that's linked in the notes from the podcast today. We're not prohibiting in-person courses, so when you log into our website, you may be able to find some that are being delivered in person. But I would say out of an abundance of caution, most trainers are not delivering things in person right now. And there are some benefits um, of doing an online course or a remote course. 
You don't have to leave your farm in the middle of busy season, which is a huge perk. I know that's one of the biggest things that we heard when we were doing focus groups and developing this training. Farmers just said, I cannot take this time to get away from my farm to do another training. I really need this to be accessible. So that's one of the benefits of the online course and the remote courses. And we do plan to continue both of those course types for the foreseeable future, especially with all this new information about new virus variants coming out. Um, we extended that remote training policy until March of next year, and, and it's likely we may extend it beyond that. So if you are considering attending a course, one huge benefit to growers in New York State is that there's actually state funding to offset the cost of the training. So that would include the certificate and the manual. Super cheap right now. I think most of the courses are around 20 bucks. So they should definitely take advantage of that opportunity because it, it is accessible to them in an online format. And um, it is relatively cheap when you look at courses all over the country. Yeah, so it does sound like, you know, there are pros and cons of the different formats and, um, you know, maybe, yeah, for people, the online course sounds great for people who really have big time crunches and want to work through it on their own. Um, the virtual courses are, you know, are, are great in that I think that you, you mentioned that there's less of a time commitment overall. Um, our team is thinking of offering in-person courses um, starting in the fall. I know some people really like, um, you know, to get together with other growers and Sometimes, you know, I, I, I overhear really great conversations during the coffee breaks and lunch. And so that's kind of an aspect that I, I really like about the in-person courses is that I see a lot of grower to grower interaction that sometimes is a little more difficult virtually. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's what you lose out on whenever you're not um, in person. And, and that's what I miss the most about my job right now is actually getting to see farmers. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back out and doing training in person. It, it is great that the growers have more options these days. And yeah, I'm hoping that the virtual option stays at least for a while. I, I think, as you mentioned, that does really improve accessibility for that course. We'll be back with more Eastern New York vegetable news after this quick break. The Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program is one of the premier regional agricultural programs of Cornell Cooperative Extension serving a large multi-county area in the Champlain Valley, Capital Region, and Hudson Valley. The team's specialists work together with Cornell faculty and county-based extension educators statewide to address the issues that impact the vegetable, tree fruit, small fruit, and grape industries. The Eastern York Commercial Horticulture Program provides educational programs and information to growers and agribusiness professionals, arming them with the knowledge to profitably produce and market safe and healthful horticultural crops, contributing to the vitality of farms and the economic well-being of New York State. More information on upcoming programs, production resources, and enrollment options to receive our digital newsletters is all available online at enych.cce.cornell.edu backslash. So maybe we will pivot now to the, the new traceability rule. Gretchen, can you tell us about that and, and what might be coming up in the future for farms? Yeah, so this new proposed traceability rule was released back in September of 2020. And this is a separate part of the Food Safety Modernization Act. It's not underneath the Produce Safety Rule. It is actually its own rule underneath FSMA. 
And the intention of this proposed rule really is to establish some record keeping requirements for certain types of foods that will help improve the traceability information, for example, during a foodborne illness outbreak or a recall, and hopefully would increase the speed and their ability to precisely trace back or trace forward where that food product has come or gone to help in that investigation process. The other thing that it may help um, that we've noticed in the past as a result of outbreaks and recalls is that when the the messaging, the public messaging is overly broad, let's say, you know, a FDA comes out and says, well, there's a, a, an issue in romaine lettuce. Maybe we're starting to see some illnesses. We know it's tied to romaine lettuce. But we don't know exactly where it's come from. All farms that are growing romaine lettuce take a hit, right? Because consumers see that on social media or they pick that up on the news and now they're afraid to buy romaine lettuce. So by being more precise about the areas where these food products are coming from so that we can say, okay, well, it's romaine lettuce coming from this particular area with these lot codes. And then that also helps our retailers pull that product off their shelves if they do have it, or at least provide confidence that the products they are carrying aren't part of that recall or outbreak. So it has benefits in that respect too. The traceability list only covers a specific number of food products, but I'll just talk specifically for this podcast about fruits and vegetables. The ones that are covered for this proposed rule, and like I said, it's proposed, so this could all change, but um, they've identified produce commodities, including cucumbers, herbs, leafy greens, peppers, melons, tomatoes, sprouts, nuts, and tropical tree fruits. So that would be like mango and papaya, as well as fresh cut fruits and vegetables that are going to be covered by the rule. Um, What that means for you as a grower or a packer or a holder of food products that are covered by this rule is that you're going to have to develop and maintain records that are going to link a traceability lot code of the produce to specific growing area coordinates, so where it's coming from out of that field. Those coordinates aren't shared with the recipients of the food, but they have to be maintained at the farm level so that if there were an issue and that um, person came back and said, where did this food come from out of your farm, you'd be able to trace it back to actual um, coordinates of the location where it came from. There's also some um, interesting things that may impact packing houses and repacking facilities. So they have some definitions in this proposed rule about activities where you would have to develop a new traceability lot code anytime what they call as originate, transform, or create a new food. So as an example of this, if you um, were a packing house and you were doing some repacking activities, you would need to create a new traceability lot code that goes with that new commingled product. And that's just to help us when you look at some of these outbreaks, these larger outbreaks that we've seen, It gets very convoluted once it gets into a packing or repacking facility because now you're taking in multiple lots from multiple farms and you may be sorting them by size or by quality or, um, you know, mixing them into boxes where you're combining multiple commodities and sometimes that traceability information gets lost. So that's why they're proposing to have this new traceability lot code for those particular activities. Um, Just like with the produce safety rule, 
there are some exemptions for um, farms. And those would be just like um, the produce safety rule, the small farms who are not selling any more than $25,000 in annual produce sales or farms who are selling direct to consumers. So that would include roadside stands, farmers markets, CSAs. Um, I think they also include the internet in that um, as a direct to consumer sale. So those farms are going to be exempt from this traceability rule. If you are growing any sprouts, there are some additional data elements that you'll have to keep just because sprouts have been identified as a higher risk commodity. For the timeline for this whole um, thing to show up, the comment period ended this last January. They're taking a look at the comments now and um, hopefully incorporating those into a future version of the final regulation which is due to the Federal Register, I believe, no later than November of 2022. So not this fall, but next fall. After that, there'll be two years provided before compliance dates kick in. So you're really not going to see anything until 2024. But it's definitely a good time to start thinking about how your farm or packing house might establish those growing coordinates and then incorporate them into traceability lot codes. And I know this has been part of the PSA grower training in module seven, we do talk about establishing a, a traceability code um, that works for your farm. So that is just another reason to attend the grower training if you have not done so yet. So Gretchen, just to step back a little bit and clarify. So the, the list of produce that will be subject to the traceability, that is different from covered produce under the produce safety rule. Is that correct? Correct. Um, there are some specific commodities, those ones that I listed, that will be covered. And then anything that was on that rarely consumed raw list, um, if you're familiar with that from the produce safety rule, that would include things like potatoes, things that you would cook before you eat. Those are not covered. But the only covered um, items from fresh produce perspective are the ones that I listed. Okay. And there are some other things, other products on there that will likely impact some of our produce growers. So for example, eggs, Absolutely. there are a lot of, you know, diversified produce farms that also produce eggs. Yep. Yeah. And cheese products and other food products, but I, I was just trying to focus specifically on, on fruits and vegetables. Okay. So as the, the time gets closer, I, I imagine that, you know, CCE as well as the Produce Safety Alliance will start developing some, some resources to help growers with formulating their traceability system. Yeah. Absolutely. We we have a, a series of um, PowerPoint slides that we're working on now, but uh, because it's a proposed rule, it's difficult to you know move forward and in incorporating that into a curriculum and, until it's really final. Um, I think we'll probably hold off on developing any more resources other than to say, here's what we know about what might come out, um, and here's how you can try to you know prepare or at least position yourself um, to start thinking about traceability on your farm, or at least start identifying areas where you might be able to develop those lot codes. Because I know when you're, especially in a diversified farm, if you've got multiple commodities, you're harvesting out of multiple um, fields or locations, that can get really tricky really fast. Um, so thinking critically about how that flow is going to work on your farm and sitting down with someone to help you with that, I think is a great thing to start doing now in preparation. Definitely. So other updates that we might want to touch on today, I know there's been some rumors that there are updates to subpart E, the water requirements coming soon. I'm just curious, Gretchen, if you have heard 
anything about that and if there are any changes to the water requirements that might be released in the somewhat near future. I really wish I had something more definitive to share right now. I A while back, I heard one of our FDA colleagues say that it was tantalizingly close to being released, which I think really isn't a great indicator, but it did make me laugh because I feel like that's just how the regulation process can be. It's like, hurry up and wait. But we do know that the revised section of subpart E is at the Office of Management and Budget. So we're hopeful to see something before the end of the summer. And that's what we've heard multiple times is that we're going to see it before the end of this summer. So when it is released, we're going to, you know, there's going to be another comment period and we're definitely going to provide updates through our listserv that you can sign up for on the Produce Safety Alliance website. But as of right now, I don't have any more information. I wish I did. Okay, well, end of summer, that does sound... I guess maybe tantalizingly close in terms of um, <laughs> how quickly regulations usually roll out. But in the meantime, what could growers do to minimize risk of contamination from water? What are sort of the main things to focus on in the meantime? Yeah, I think this is a great question because there's a lot that can be done even in absence of this um, particular part of the regulation. And I think if you've been paying attention to the news in the past year, we know that there have been several outbreaks that do point back to ag water as a potential source. And we know that in general, water application is one of those activities on the farm that can make a really small problem into a really big one. If you think about irrigation, you're spreading that water over an entire crop. If that water quality is poor or if there's contamination in it, you've now contaminated potentially your entire crop. So I think this is a really important topic for growers to be focusing on, even without the regulation coming into play, just thinking about how do you reduce risk with water. And I would say in absence of these regulations coming out right now, the best place to start is to begin testing your water sources if you haven't done so yet. So testing is really going to help you establish that baseline of water quality and enable you to better understand things like seasonal trends or other impacts to your water source. So this would be um, any surface or groundwater sources like ponds, streams, or wells that you're using to irrigate or that are going to contact the harvestable portion of that produce. So you're going to want to find a lab who can provide a test for quantified generic E. coli. And this is something that we talk a lot about in the training. So if, if this is all sounding like a lot of garbled gook right now, I definitely recommend coming to the Produce Safety Alliance Grower Training because we have two modules that actually just talk about production water and then also post-harvest water. But what I mean when I say you need to ask for a test for quantified generic E. coli is that you need to get a number from the lab, not just a readout that says presence absence or yes or no. You don't want to know that you just have it in your water. You want to know how much is in your water because that's going to help you to determine what the risk is. And eventually, um, if the produce safety rule stays the way it is right now, there is a requirement to develop this water quality profile, which means that you have to have numbers to make that profile. But again, that could change. Um, the key point is that you should be testing your water for quantified generic E. coli. And if you're not sure where uh, to go for that, 
the Northeast Center to Advance Food Safety has a really awesome interactive map which allows growers to search for a lab that provides the specific test required by the produce safety rule. So I think um, last night I was looking at this just to see in New York State um, which labs might be providing the test. And I think there's at least 15 or more across the state. So chances are there is a lab within a reasonable distance of your farm to get these tests done. Um, I do recommend testing each water source right now at least three times per season. So we typically recommend doing it once right before you're using the water or right at the beginning of the season when you're starting to use water for irrigation or other um, production activities. And then do the other two tests during periods when you're heavily using that water source, you know, to maybe take one in the middle of the season or one closer to harvest. And that will help you get a better picture over the season and just those seasonal trends. Um, you can absolutely take more if you would like. And, you know, the more testing, you know, the more data you have. But I would say at minimum, you should be taking three tests per water source. For the growers who haven't or have already started testing, then I would definitely recommend they continue their testing program. And instead of, you know, focusing just on testing, I would recommend going out this season and spending a little bit of time evaluating your water distribution system. Take a look at things like pipes, their connections, is the backflow, preve backflow prevention installed properly, even if it's there at all? Um, are there any other potential sources of contamination that could run off into the waterways, like Maybe your neighbor has some new cattle or a compost pile that might be le uh, leaching into the stream or, or something else. Because I think the question to ask yourself is, have there been any new changes to your water system or even more broadly on your farm? Things like filtration systems for sediment. Maybe you have new workers who haven't been trained or maybe you have abnormally low water years. Um, for example, many states are in a drought right now and it's raining here in New Hampshire today, but we have been extremely dry this summer. And when water levels are lower, we tend to see spikes in bacteria. So I've mentioned this only because we oftentimes find that food safety problems occur when something has changed. So it's definitely a reason to stop, take a look at how any changes on your farm might have impacted water quality. And that can be done just by going out and looking at your water distribution system, being really familiar with what's going on around your water sources. We've had two really dry seasons here in the North Country. Um, you know, it was downpouring last night, but the earlier part of the season was very dry. And I've been seeing more farms in my area invest in drip irrigation, which I really like to see. Um, you know, overhead irrigation with surface water is one of the riskier water applications. Um, and so, what, yeah, one of the practices that I recommend um, that growers do is, if they can, you know, investing in drip, it's a more efficient use of water, um, but also keeps that water off of, you know, the leaves and above ground harvested portions of the crop. So. That is one practice that I've been recommending and um, I think has multiple benefits for growers. Yeah, I would agree. And and especially for crops where you can avoid the contact with the harvestable portion, it's, it's not so great for things like carrots um, because you're not going to avoid it through drip there. But still, like, like you mentioned, there are also efficiency things related to, um, you know, managing water that way too. Right. Yeah, it depends on how the crop is growing. But... 
Yeah, you mentioned yeah the water water lab testing uh, map. That's a really great resource. I will make sure to put that in the episode description as well. And if growers have any questions about developing a water testing system for their farm, I'm happy to answer any questions if they want to reach out to me. I guess as as we wrap up our episode today, Gretchen, are there any new resources that might be available for growers that you'd like to share? Yeah, um, there's one project that I think I'm really excited to share with everyone because it kind of marries my personal and professional interests. I've always had an interest in art and illustrations and what they can convey instead of really text-heavy educational materials. I know that regulatory terms and reading regulation can be really tough. Um, So I'm more of a visual learner and a hands-on learner, and I know many farmers are the same. So through funding that we received uh, from the National Farmers Union, the Local Food Safety Collaborative, we're actually working on a series of illustrations, which will show some key produce safety practices, um, things like cleaning and sanitizing, There's a packing house flow illustration, um, how to establish no harvest buffer zones and and identify contamination in the field, things related to post-harvest water management. We have some um, equipment illustrations and then some illustrations related to changing out your water and and, um, turbidity of water, among several other topics. So We envision that these illustrations can be used for multiple purposes. Um, It could be for training programs, things like tailgate tailgate trainings or directly with workers. We also um, develop them with the thought that they'll be really valuable to audiences with low literacy or who don't speak a common written language. We have uh, a number of Hmong growers in this country that um, the written language in in Hmong is... um, very diverse and very challenging and and it's much more of a spoken language so pictures can really convey a lot rather than having words on a piece of paper. So we're planning on finalizing the first set of illustrations that we developed um, this summer. Hopefully we'll release those before the end of this year along. There'll be some teaching notes that come along with them so you know what the key points are. Um, These would be great for you know, a, a field manager um, to or a food safety manager to use in training. And then we're also going to be moving forward with a second set. Um, we got additional funding for a second year for this project. So we're going back to our list trying to figure out what other areas we can develop some illustrations for. So that's one of the really exciting prog- uh, projects I've been working on. And then the second thing that um, we've been spending a lot of time on are translations of the materials. We recognize there's a whole wide range of languages spoken by farm workers across the U.S. and internationally. So right now, the curriculum is available in English and Spanish, and we're almost complete with a um, Portuguese translation. We also have, sorry, we also have a Chinese version Um, But we're working on additional translations in Korean, Creole, and Ilocano, which is a language spoken in the Philippines. So keep an eye out for those new versions, too. Um, I think those will be very valuable to our farm worker population who don't speak English. I really look forward to seeing the the infographics and, and some of those visual resources, I think, I'm definitely not an artist, but I I know that there's great value in creating a really good infographic or diagram. And so I'm really happy that the PSA is pairing with somebody who has the skills to do that. I think that'll be very, very valuable for us. 
yeah, we're, we're excited about it. And the illustrator that we're working with, um, she actually has already done some work um, on some materials that Penn State released. Um, for those of you who have seen some of the flip charts that are focused on plain growers, um, she's the artist that did those, as well as um, working previously on Highlights magazine. Um, so for those of you who grew up reading Highlights, um, it's the same illustrator. So um, it's really it's really turning out well. I'm really happy with it. Well, very good. Yeah, I definitely grew up, grew up with Highlights. That brings me back. Well, thank you, Gretchen. I really appreciate uh, the time that you took to talk with us today, and I look forward to seeing those new resources. And as I mentioned, there are a number of um, links that I'll be posting in the episode description. And if the listeners have any questions at all about um, improving food safety on their farm, feel free to reach out to me. I'll post my contact information as well. Thanks again, Gretchen. Yeah, thanks for having me, Elizabeth. And I just encourage everyone to reach out and use the resources that are available to you. You know, our team is always happy to help with technical assistance or training and resources. So don't hesitate to contact us. And um, yeah, we'll look forward to any questions that come from this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Eastern New York Veg News Podcast. For more information on the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program, visit our website at enych.cce.cornell.edu. Also be sure to check out the links included in the episode description. Thanks also to Nate Mangaziel, who is in charge of all audio production, editing, and design for this episode. Peace.